Okay, so now we start again. Yes. Okay, now I'm going to be Actually, just... Actually, this uh, is a good idea. Yeah, now I'm starting again. Uh, I'm going to be just much more chilled now that I'm a bit more... You know, I need to find a good... What's up, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you live from UFA Radio Headquarters, this is a new show. It's called Momo Eats the Bigly, Bigly, Bigly. With your hosts, Carlota and me, Leonard. Nope, we're doing this again. I kind of like that uh, that intro. At least that the momo eats the bigly. You know that uh, um, when In I... In the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, okay, yeah. Say it. Um, when, I, when I said to the board that we were doing a podcast and it was going to call, be called Momo Eats the Bigly, yeah. they all just looked at me like I was an idiot. And they were saying, you know, well, what, what does it mean? I didn't, I didn't want to explain it. And I also don't no. want to explain it. No. I think uh, it's fine if we, if we don't tell anyone what the real meaning of the title is. Or no, I agree. And with that, welcome to Momo Eats the Bigly. So, um, yeah, you want to introduce the podcast? Yeah, maybe we'll start over. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we are Lenny and Carlota. Uh, I'm Carlota and... And I'm Lenny. Yeah. So we're recording this po- podcast. Uh, uh, it's called Momo It's the Bigly. We're recording from Uber Radio Studio at the University of Amsterdam. And today we're going to be talking about homelessness. But before we do that, maybe we should uh, let you know what this podcast is going to be about and what we're going to do in the following weeks. All right. We started thinking about this podcast a couple of months ago. We are both two students at the University of Amsterdam. We're in the master's program for international relations and political economy, respectively. And um, we are going to do a podcast. We are going to... Wait, what? You're in political economy? No, you're in political economy. We were in the IR class oh, together. <laughs> how? How? What am I misremembering? <laughs> it's because you had economics in PPLE. Yeah, but okay. That'll Where? never leave you. Yeah. <laughs> forever, forever. Hey, I love econ. Okay, kind of. That's not what you told me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a love-hate relationship. Okay. Um, anyway. Spinning a PPLE Lenny and I bottle. were in the same class, but apparently he forgot. We, you know. Okay, so go on. Um, no, we got to do this again, don't we? We have to. I don't think we do. I think it's fine. Okay. Um, it's a podcast. We're going to do it every week uh, or maybe every other week. Uh, we're not going to hold ourselves to high standards. Um, we're only holding our quality to high standards because co- quality trumps quantity. Um, we are going to do research on topics that relate to the social life all over the world. So um, it could be a political issue here in Europe, or it could be a social issue in the Americas, or it could it could be about warfare, about peace, it could be about equality, inequality. Um, for sure, it will relate to sort of like the political sphere in some sense or another, uh, at least for the first couple of episodes. I think it's important uh, to make it clear that neither Lenny or I are experts on every topic. We're going to do our best to research it as thoroughly as we can in the given time that we have. As thoroughly as we want to. Sure. Yeah, yeah. that as yeah. well. That as well. Uh, and we welcome any uh, comments that you may have or corrections or any contributions that you want to make to our, our podcast and our research. But without further ado, should we start talking about our topic for the week? Absolutely. But before we do that, let's go and thank our sponsor for a second. 
This episode of Momo Eats the Bigly is brought to you by Flush Kitten. Flush Kitten is the first 100% biodegradable single-use kitten you can simply flush down your toilet when you're done with it. Have you ever found yourself wanting a cute kitten in your home, but just aren't sure you're ready for a long-term commitment? Or are you perhaps worried that a full-grown cat is actually a pretty terrible creature in the first place? Then Flush Kitten might be the solution for you. Flush Kitten is a subscription-based kitten delivery service that brings you the freshest little plush tigers right to your doorstep twice a month. Each kitten is plug-and-play and comes in a recyclable box to make a bold statement about the dangers of climate change. You don't need to worry about anything else. Because Flush Kittens are single-use, you don't have to think about cleaning or feeding them, and therefore you also won't need a litter box. After use, Flush Kittens can simply be disposed of by flushing them down in the toilet, like you would a fish or drugs. Not only is this an environmentally safe process, but Flush Kittens even enrich your local groundwater with vital nutrients and minerals. So it would be irresponsible not to at least try Flush Kitten. We absolutely love Flush Kitten here at Momo Eats the Bigly and cannot recommend this product enough to our listeners. It's an easy and fun way to gain access to a variety of cats with all the upsides and absolutely no negative consequences that we can think of. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to flushkitten.com slash momoeatsthebigly to get 50% off your first Flush Kitten and receive access to Flush Kitten's legal services for half a year for free. Once more, that's flushkitten.com slash momoeatsthebigly. Now... Our topic today is homelessness. Yeah, so Lenny and I both did uh, very different research. We thought it'd be a good idea if we didn't tell each other what direction we were going into, and then we would just see sort of what each of us uh, found out. But I think it's important to start with a bit basic stuff. So, for example, uh, seeing how many people are homeless around the world, things like that. Absolutely. But before we do that, I want to ask you, what is your relationship to homelessness? How do you relate to it? What do you feel when you think about homelessness, what do you feel when you see people sleeping rough? Right, so homelessness is obviously a very serious problem and it is something that we all see around us every day, I would say, especially if you live in a city and we sort of ignore it. Um, and I think also there's also this prevalent explanation or, 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 or everyone thinks that if you're homeless is at least to a certain extent, partly your fault. Right? I think you attribute it to uh, personal incompetence. Uh, this person maybe didn't work enough or... Okay, and a few a few times you think uh, maybe just uh, rough circumstances that led this person to be homeless or something like that. But it is a problem that we understate and, and, we, and we see it and we think, okay, because it's a very small percentage of the population that are homeless, it's not that serious and there's always going to be homeless people so there's nothing we can do about it. I don't think that's true. And I think uh, the homeless uh, pr homelessness problem is, is very... Um, understated because we only count people who are actually homeless and not people who are living in, in precarious uh, circumstances, people without uh, energy, people without food or, or without appropriate housing, you know, in decent conditions, people who might be evicted anytime soon. But to be more specific about my relationship to the topic is actually evictions. Being Spanish, I've seen this in the news constantly, especially since the crisis. It is a very politicized uh, issue in, in Spain. You, you see a uh, mm, lot of organizations, NGOs, that have sprung up after the crisis trying to stop evictions. The biggest social movement in Europe is actually a Spanish one, the one against evictions. It's called Plataforma para los Afectados de la Hipoteca, which uh, translates roughly to the platform for um, the affected people uh, by the mortgages, I guess, something like that. Uh, so yeah, that's my relationship to the topic. It's uh, very relevant in my home country. And what have you found in your research? 
Um, well, what in Spain or or generally globally? Um, maybe in Spain first. I think the global uh, stuff we can get to that a bit later. Well, uh, based on a uh, report by the European Coalition for the Right to Housing and to the City, which is a, a grassroots uh, movement that was formed by housing groups, NGOs, and researchers all across Europe, um, I, I looked a little bit into into the situation in Spain. It seems that uh, the situation got really bad after after the crisis. I guess uh, most people are familiar with the 2007-8 uh, financial crisis, which was also a debt crisis. And um, this was very serious in Spain. Uh, it led to over 600,000 foreclosures and, well, let's focus on evictions, 400,000 home evictions between 2008 and 2015. And this was due to Spain's mortgage law, uh, which uh, basically the property that you took a loan, uh, uh, well, you want to buy a property, you take a loan, and usually you would use this property as collateral, right? Which uh, would mean that if you, in the end, are unable to to make the payments, then the bank uh, would take uh, this property and and keep it, and ideally your ca your debt should be cancelled. But this is uh, not the situation in in at least in Spain. I don't know if if this happened in other countries, but uh, you would uh, go into bankruptcy. You cannot pay uh, the payments for your loan. You lose the house. But instead of cancelling your debt because you've given up that property that you that you bought, you still have a substantial amount of debt, and not only you, but also your your sponsors, which might also not be able to uh, pay the, 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 the loan payments and might even lose their own houses. Uh, so a lot of people were affected by this. They, they took uh, mortgages that they couldn't pay. And let's not forget that people took these mortgages because uh, the sort of uh, the financial institutions and banks were, over, were lending way too much money to people and saying, you know, buy houses, buy houses. You have to buy houses. And this is how we, ha we created this whole bubble, which at some point evidently exploded. Uh, and then the people who were hurt were, were the ones that took these loans. The bank, in the end, ended up with a, a, a huge amount of uh, assets in real estate, that might have been uh, devalued a little bit, but that over time uh, uh, regained their value. Um, and these people were, were left in the, in the streets. And this is why this movement uh, appeared. You said, to that, you said that Spain was particularly hard hit in the financial crisis. I mean, why is that? I think so. I think, uh, well, the, the evictions uh, thing was, was a really big problem. Um, w before the crisis, there was a big construction boom in Spain. Mm -hmm. So they were building a lot, a lot of houses, and a lot of people were buying them. And then, of course, when all these people couldn't pay their 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 mortgages, especially because salaries didn't really uh, increase as housing prices I increased, then you get the situation that that we had this a lot of people in the streets or living in 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 rough circumstances, let's just say. But yeah, we we saw that dur during the crisis, Spain wasn't doing very well. Uh, mm -hmm. um, Brussels, uh, well, Brussels, I don't like saying Brussels, but like say, uh, you know, the commission and everything, <laughs> uh, the, the central bank giving orders uh, as to how we, we ha had to manage our, our economy, which is the same that happened to, to Greece or mm. uh, I think maybe Italy and Portugal as well. Mm. And has there been any progress made since then? I mean, the economy has slowly bounced back and I, I, I think uh, the, the number of uh, evictions might have uh, gone down from its peak in let's say 2008, nine, maybe 10. But uh, I don't think it's uh, dramatically improved. But I, I don't know, This mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I cannot say this is a fact. What about you? What about me? Um, I started my research here in Amsterdam um, because one thing I always noticed about living here in Amsterdam is that homelessness doesn't appear 
and I'm saying this very clearly, it doesn't appear to be a big problem here in Amsterdam. Uh, I say this because having lived here for three and a half years, four years, um, it just barely ever happens that I see very many people begging um, or that I, you know, see people sleeping rough. Uh, whenever I do see people who sort of look like they are um, homeless, um, I see them going in and out of shelters. I see them uh, sort of going to food banks. And it always sort of like gave me this impression that um, homelessness here in Amsterdam is managed fairly well. Um, and from most of the research that I could find, this appears to be somewhat true, somewhat true. Um, so there was a new project that was implemented in 2006 that um, apparently halved the homeless population in the four largest city in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, The Hague, and Utrecht. Um, and, you know, it helped them with assistance for medical care, addiction, psychological problems, and even some free accommodation for some people. Um, and this project apparently uh, saved two to three euros for every euro that was invested. Um, yeah, and that sort of stuff is obviously sort of like the statistics, the the bright spots on this whole um, issue here in the Netherlands. What I also know actually is that um, I talked to a couple of homeless people over the years, uh, one of whom once told me that he had been on and off homeless. He will usually be homeless for two or three days before he finds somewhere to sleep. So he will find assistance either from the city government or from family members. But then a couple of days later, things will just kind of fall apart again and he's out on the street again. So this sort of chronic homelessness um, that is masked as transitional homelessness, mm. uh, that is probably still fairly like a fairly big problem. Um, this guy was telling me that he doesn't, he's not eligible for all the benefits that chronic, chronically homeless people in Amsterdam get uh, because he simply hasn't been able to prove that he's been living on the streets for long enough. This, this I would say, uh, links to an issue that we both uh, discussed whilst we were researching, and that's the, let's say, unreliability of statistics. So, for example, I have here a, a report from the Institute of Global Homelessness, and um, and this is something that I, I saw everywhere that I was researching, every, every study that I looked up, they all said every country records statistics very differently uh, with respect to homelessness, and they define homelessness in very different ways. So this report shows me that there's three broad categories of uh, identifying who is homeless. You have people without accommodation, people living in temporary or crisis accommodation, and people living in severely inadequate or insecure accommodation. And within these three categories, there's actually many more. So to be specific and, 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 and show a few examples uh, by country, let me find this because I actually have this somewhere here written down you're right um so for example in the united states people who are classified as homeless includes unsheltered and those in temporary shelters whereas in japan it only includes those who are unsheltered canada apparently only uh, doesn't really have a standard definition of homelessness the united the united kingdom does it separately in wales england northern ireland and scotland and each of those actually measure it differently um, in Spain, you have homelessness figures reported as an average per day. And in Italy, you use a proxy for homelessness. That's uh, requested service assistance, which is a terrible proxy, I would say. A lot of people don't want to say that they're homeless and don't want right. to re uh, request assistance. This actually comes from a, a report by Deloitte. 
um, it was called the homelessness uh, paradox, which uh, tries to explain why in advanced economies you still have people who, who live in the streets. So as we talk about homelessness, we have the inherent difficulty of, uh, of actually getting reliable statistics that can tell us what the real situation is. Um, but yeah, what did you find about uh, statistics in different countries? Anything that you found striking that you were particularly yeah. surprised? I mean, they're, they're wild, wildly different. Um, you will find very, very different uh, definitions of what homelessness is. As you said, another definition, another, another typology I found here is the ethos light typology, um, which has six categories instead of three. Um, and that goes all the way from people living rough, so living in the streets or public spaces in a tent or no shelter at all, to people living temporarily in conventional housing with family or friends, which in you know a lot of countries uh, would not be considered uh, homelessness. So there are very, very many different uh, ways of looking into it. I found an OECD report um, from a few years ago um, that's kind of trying to compare the different countries uh, in the OECD and uh, their figures on homelessness. They are very, very hard to compare. And that's what it says all throughout the report. It says, hey, you can't really take these numbers as you know, you know, perfect indicators for homelessness simply because um, we measure them differently. But what we do see um, in that report is that uh, you know, the country with the lowest uh, number of homeless people is Japan. Um, I also found a report by an NGO that's based in Tokyo that says, while it's not entirely true, like the numbers that the government are reporting homelessness in Japan, given the vast size of the country and metropolitan areas like Tokyo, it is true that homelessness is relatively low. Um, a figure I found about Japan is that 95% of all homeless people uh, in Japan are uh, middle-aged or old men, um, and that uh, you know the number of homeless people... And this, again, take all of these statistics with a grain of salt, because... Um, one of the craziest statistics that I found here is that in 2014, there were only about 1,697 homeless people in Tokyo. Which for a th city of uh, 36 million people, if you count yeah. the metropolitan area, it's just... It's, it's, a, it, it w it's, uh, it's kind of impossible yeah, that that a, was true. Yeah, it's a little bit unbelievable, I would right. say. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, um, Japan is known for its social cohesion and um, you lived in Japan. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? I mean, uh, I can talk about all my life in Japan, but I don't know much about homelessness in Japan. Uh, all I can say is that you don't really see those many homeless people in the streets, I would say, usually. Um, well, what I, I knew that there was a park in Tokyo where most of the homeless people would, would go to sleep and they had sort of their houses there. So. They wouldn't sleep in a different place every night. Generally, they would have their sort of spot uh, in this park. And it was a, a <laughs> kind of unspoken rule that this was the place where they would stay. Most people don't really walk through this park. It's just it's just there. And, 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 and people who don't have a house or cannot find housing uh, stay there. But I don't know. I don't know much about their situation. Let's talk a little bit more about reasons for homelessness, because I think that's something that in the conversation on homelessness is often overlooked, um, especially um, when you look at how the authorities, you know, city governments, local governments, uh, approach this issue. Um, I was in Seattle recently, uh, in the northwest of the United States, where homelessness was just terrible. I mean, it's doubled since two th 2015. 
Um, a lot of people say it's because Amazon and you know Google, Microsoft are starting to buy up the city, um, and there's just no more housing for people available who used to live in Seattle for decades and decades. Uh, you know now there's developers coming in who make six figures right out of college who can afford all of these shiny new apartments, and it's just you know gentrification. Um, at peak gentr gentrification. Um, and I talked to some people there about it because, you know, sometimes it'd just be people I would meet at social events or um, just people in the streets because it, it was really striking to me because the last time I was there was five years ago, uh, 2015. And it was bad then, but it was nowhere near as terrible as it was uh, when I was back now. And I spoke to people and there was a weird story that I heard from a lot of people which was that if homeless people were able to afford a bus ticket home um, to the places that they're originally from, then the problem could be solved. Because Wait, what? Yeah. So, and I heard this over and over and over again. I heard this from at least at least three people. Um, random, like they, they had nothing to do with each other, different ages, different genders, and they all said they just can't afford a bus ticket home. And that's why they're homeless? And that's why they're homeless. And... I talked to a friend of mine about this and he's American and he told me that this is a very common story that people kind of grow up with. And now I really? don't know. Yeah. And I don't know if this is true, uh, but from what this guy told me, this is sort of like, um, I don't even know what to call it. It's not a, it's not an urban legend. It's sort of like a urban wisdom. Is that a word? Is that a thing? It makes sense. It's like I, an I urban wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, that homeless people literally can't afford the bus ticket home. And and that was shocking to me because it just seems like such an... It seems like escapism. It seems like you don't want to confront the reality of, of the economic and social problems that underlie homelessness. Um, related to that, right, so reasons why people um, are homeless. There's several sets of explanations, I guess, that, that people use. So first we have the blaming the poor um, explanations, and that's uh, basically related to being incompetent. Uh, you didn't work, you don't want to work, you didn't look for a job, things like that. Then you have um, um, also others related to your personal circumstances. So for example, unexpected events, something crazy happened to you and, and you saw yourself in the streets, or maybe substance abuse or domestic violence, single parenthood, which are no, no doubt also uh, factors, but they're, I, I would say, not the, the core of the issue. Then you have um, explanations that relate more to um, housing policies uh, and things like that, um, or, or the housing market, uh, the, the financial crisis, which go, I, I would say, a little bit deeper. And then you have explanations, and these are the ones that I would tend to favor, but you know me. Um, mm -hmm. So these are the ones blaming capitalism, which is always my favorite thing to do. So mm -hmm. those are the ones that I always stick it with. Is. Um, what do you think is the is the reason? I found one study from the United Kingdom um, that had a really interesting poll. So it polled all people um, who defined themselves as homeless um, between 2010 and 2016. And it showed that um, the different reasons that people named uh, stayed relatively um, stable over those six years. So those would be relatives or friends no longer able or willing to provide accommodation, stayed hovered at roughly 12 to 14%, uh, relationship breakdown with partner, uh, somewhere at 8% throughout that time, 
loss of rented uh, or tiered housing uh, stayed roughly the same between four and five percent. The one factor, and you'll like this, I mean, it's terrible, but you will like this because it plays into um, what you just said. The one factor that um, really rose from about 5% in 2010 to almost 20% in 2016 is end of private sector tenancy. So apparently the local and national laws in England loosened up in that time, which made it a lot easier for um, owners of buildings, for, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Lessers, um, yeah, renters. No, not renters. Not the tenants. No, not, not tenants. The people who own it. Apartment owners. Isn't that a tenant? No, tenants, person who lives. Oh, okay. Um, like the apartment owners. Um, it was a Landlord. Landlords. Okay. There you are. Um, the landlords, it was much easier for them to, um, to evict people. So that figure rose from four to freaking like 18% or something like that. I actually found uh, other reports that said exactly the same thing about other countries. I think they said that Germany had done this as well and that, and that Greece had done it, that they had um, sort of sped up the, the procedures to getting someone evicted and sometimes even tried to take it out of the judicial, judicial realm. Mm. So not having a judge involved. Oh, sneaky. Uh, yeah, so the... That, that makes sense according to my, my research as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So I think that these sort of forces, these market forces that obviously accelerate when you have a Tory government for years and years and years uh, or other right-wing governments in European cities or neoliberal governments in the case of Seattle. Uh, let's go back to Seattle for a moment. But Seattle uh, not, is... Not just uh, Seattle, I would Not say. just Seattle, but Seattle is, a, is to me an especially interesting example because Seattle is a known in the United States as a very liberal city. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Seattle, San Francisco, like those, Portland, many cities on the West Coast, especially north of San Francisco, have this reputation of being very liberal. Um, you know, equality is really important. And I think for a city that prides, prides itself on that sort of reputation, it's especially disgusting what's going on. Because I think now that money is involved, like big serious money in Seattle, I think it really shows the the true colors of the psyche that's uh, that's apparent in Seattle, because it shows that um, these people who are running uh, city council, um, the people who are you know in a way bought off by Amazon, apparently they don't care as much about equality as they do about investments, and I understand that they also need to kind of do their job and they have people breathing down their neck. But it really isn't looking good for Seattle and, and their image of, of liberalism uh, and, and kind of equality. It really seems more like a neoliberal super dream where, in a way, really what you want is you want an adequate level of freedoms and you want to smoke your pot and you want to have you know drugs be relatively legal and you right. want to do all these fun things. Essentially, it's more of a libertarian city at this point. Yeah. And that is not to say that there aren't organizations in the city um, that are helping homeless people, but the amount of charity work that this is, the amount of stuff that's going on that's simply not city-sponsored, that's shocking to me. For instance, there's a there's a place in Seattle called Myers Parcel, and that's been a lot in um, in Seattle for for the past since 2004 or something that the city acquired from Nintendo back in the day, and um, you know they were trying to sell it, but then the financial crisis hit and it didn't work. 
And then later on, they uh, were trying to sell it again. But by that point, people were like, hey, what's going on? Why are you selling all of our public land? You know, Seattle needs to keep some public land. We need parks. We need social spaces. And Seattle was trying to sell it. And then there were huge protests at this uh, Myers parcel. Um, and eventually, um, you know, the city was like, hey, we want to sell this. We need the money to combat homelessness. We need this money, right? And the protesters were like, uh, you're drawing a false equivalency between helping homeless people and you know, selling this lot because they were saying you probably just want to make money or you want to just get the rent or whatever. You want to get the money from whoever wants to buy the parcel, you know? So what happened was after years of protest, the Myers parcel wasn't sold. It was retained by the city. The mayor, Ed Murray, was like, hey, we listen to you. Like, really great. Like, right. Um, we're such awesome people for not selling this lot. Within a year or so, a charity swooped in and set up a homelessness camp or a camp for the homeless with tiny houses there um, that helped about 50 people. I think four or five of them are for two people and the rest of them are single units to get a roof over their head to like get themselves started again. So immediately you see as soon as the city is running out of excuses why they should sell the parcel, some charity has to come in and then do work for almost for free at no cost to the city, actually helping the homeless people. You know, and Seattle for years was like, oh, we have to sell this in order to help the homeless people. This just makes it a really it's just not a credible thing of the city government to say when very apparently after just a few months, a charity comes in and starts helping. But it had to be a charity because the city wasn't doing anything about it. Yeah, I actually think uh, that the proposal of the city was exactly the opposite of uh, what they should be doing. The, the housing problem or the homeless problem has to do a lot with uh, privatization of uh, public land and also uh, with the commodification uh, of land, right? And, and, and the way that it affects uh, real estate. So generally when people think about the homelessness problem or the housing system, they think, oh, this is, you know, it's, it's flawed, but we can fix it. There, there, I'm sure there's something we can do. But... Uh, it, you really need more of a radical uh, solution because the the real problem here is that housing policies, they they want to expand home ownership for for the middle class, uh, maybe even um, you know manage to get people to have a second home, things like that, um, and they align the interests of these people with the interest of uh, real estate. So what you want um, is that people want uh, uh, property prices to rise uh, because that's profitable for them, or at least the middle class wants that. But of course, the people who are uh, affected negatively by this are, are the, the people who are poorer, especially uh, minorities or people who are marginalized. Um, let's not forget that the people who are most affected by by homelessness are, are uh, by a big margin, uh, people of color, or for example, in Spain, that's right. it would be the, the, the Roma community who are often, in Spain, I think it, it's actually quite extreme that people will not rent your house because you belong to this community. It's, it's crazy. Um, so this has to do with uh, real estate, the real estate uh, sort of uh, um, um, I agree. market, let's just say. Um, this has happened uh, in history many times. It happened uh, back in the beginnings of uh, capitalism where peasants were kicked out of their lands and, and church and state land was uh, appropriated by private owners. It happened um, after the, uh, well, in the 70s. So um, I don't know if uh, people are familiar with this, but uh, after the, the war, there was this sort of uh, consensus or, or agreement between labor and capital that imposed uh, certain restrictions on capital. And it was seen as a sort of compromise, you know, that letting uh, uh, sort of uh, giving more power to to 
la the labor force. But then in the 70s, all these economic policies that had been working, the mainly Keynesian economic policies that had been working for years suddenly didn't work anymore. And this is where neoliberalism, neoliberalism sort of uh, was brought back to life, you know, Thatcher, Reagan, um, and suddenly uh, privatization um, started, you know, being widespread. Uh, you had, uh, um, uh, yeah, lo loads of lands that were used to be public who were not anymore. So that was uh, sort of the second time that, that people were uh, robbed of uh, a land or, or that housing became a problem. But then back again in 2007, 2008, we had the crisis, right? And, and this was spe especially uh, serious. Um, so you had people who had um, taken loans to, to buy houses and then uh, after the crisis exploded and the, the, the housing bubble exploded because the uh, prices of houses went skyrocketed and people could no longer pay their their mortgages they lost their houses um but what's more is that after the now i'm going to talk specifically about uh, europe and the ecb after the crisis you had all these uh, banks which were considered now sort of unsafe right they had a lot of assets that were worthless because it's just a lot of loans that could not be paid back and houses that had lost much of their value um so the ecb says okay we're gonna do uh, some quantitative easing right that's the, the solution to our problems the idea behind that is that um you you inject some money into the economy with the hopes of sort of getting everything to move a little bit more right so you want the economy to be more dynamic and people to start spending and things like that you lower interest rates as well so it's easier to 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 borrow and to uh, yeah, so the economic activity can flourish. The thing is that um, you give all this money to banks, and these banks, what they did is that instead of investing that in, in sort of worthwhile activities that would create economic value, so for example, investing in infrastructure, they go to London or hotspots like Berlin or Amsterdam, and they, they, they invest in real estate. Mm -hmm. So, yes, yeah, some money is going to move around because the rich people are going to get richer and they're going to spend a little bit more, but... It's not going to have a real effect on, on, on people's lives. That's just going to help to accumulate more and more in the hands of people who already have right. uh, properties. Um, so, yeah, actually, now I kind of lost uh, my train of thought. Where, where no, that, that, that makes absolutely but sense. But, yeah, does this make sense? Because, like, for example, yeah. um, Blackstone, you're familiar with Blackstone? Mm -hmm. I, think it's, I think it's called Blackstone. I'm going to Google this right now. Well, I already said, mm -hmm, so it has to be called Blackstone because <laughs> I'm going out on a limb here. Yeah, so Blackstone is, is, is like it. a private equity fund, right? It's like sure. A, yeah. Um, uh, which uh, are, it's sort of a, uh, what, what's it called in English? Predatory fund, maybe? I don't know if that's the word. Predatory sounds evil. Yeah, in, in, in Spanish it's uh, Fondo Buitre. Buitre is like a predatory bird. Mm, um, like a drink. So somehow Blackstone is now one, which is an American company, is now one of the biggest landlords in Spain. Mm. Because during the crisis, when um, uh, the, the er everything exploded, housing prices suddenly started going down because no one was buying houses, you know? So all these uh, um, banks or, 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 or companies like uh, Blackstone or whatever, mm -hmm. they're like, you know what, there's an opportunity. We're just going to buy all these houses at these ridiculously low prices because um, people are getting evicted from them. And we're just going to keep them and wait until prices bounce back. So now we have a shit ton of empty houses where no one li lives and the previous owners are now in the streets and you're just going to wait until the market bounces back and then you're just going to sell it and you're going to make a huge profit from a problem that you sort of created yourself, that the banks created themselves, you know? Uh, it's just, uh, it's really... It's, it's fucked up. Yeah, it's really it's, fucked it's up. It's actually fucked up. And it, it's, it's so clearly, you know, the issue of like unlimited property, unlimited wealth, like those things just, it's, it's a disproportionate response to you know, to the to the social issues that, that brought about the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. What should have happened is for, you know, the international community and international people to kind of wake up and go like, hey, this is not how we can keep running this shit. 
the bankers who actually brought us into this crisis are being bailed out. You know, a lot of them came with out public richer money. with public, public money. money. And the, 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 the power of capital, the power of the economy is just so strong that we just like we're straight back into an even more neoliberal uh, yeah. hellhole. It's it's ridiculous. It's it's terrifying. Also, because uh, people don't see the the asymmetry between saying so. For example, when you have a very leftist uh, government that wants to spend a lot on on social issues, they'll tell you, yeah, but you can't spend money on on, on everything. You know, like yeah. money is not infinite. Why then are you bailing out the banks, right. making them even richer afterwards, imposing no new like conditions on, on them saying okay now you have to be more responsible financial regulation hasn't really been tightened that much since since the crisis it, it no. i would even say that i don't know this for uh, for fact but i would even say that maybe it's the opposite maybe it's, it's even been liberalized the a thing little is, bit more the thing is we it is unreasonable to expect that people who didn't seriously study finance and finance law for us to understand really what all the loopholes are What I do know is that people are extremely afraid of the Bernie Sanders campaign. <laughs> What I do know is that Wall Street is absolutely scared shitless. Yeah, look, why, why is Bloomberg running? Why is Bloomberg? He, like, that's a great question. Literally, it's not about Trump. To our okay, listeners, he, if he, you have an answer to this, why the fuck is Bloomberg running? But he's not running against Trump. He's literally running against Bernie. It's interesting because uh, he just said today that the only real threat to him, Bloomberg, which, I mean, if he starts a sentence that way, it's clear he's, you know, demented a little bit but he said bernie is the only real threat to his campaign he said that yeah he said like he's the the most serious challenger See? to his campaign yeah and bloomberg also tom steyer did this too do you know tom steyer he's the other billionaire running oh, okay i don't know um, this. there's so many people running he's trying to like cuddle up to bernie and bernie keeps going like nah bro go away like <laughs> he just doesn't want anything to do with these guys um because to him they're buying elections and you know what he's proposing is a tax on Wall Street transactions, right? So for each of these large transactions, the details are obviously more complicated, but for each of the large transactions that have to do with day trading, that have to do with, you know, infinite, you know, wealth creation, he wants to impose a small tax that will, you know, go into all of these projects, you know, affordable education, affordable healthcare, all of these things. What the media is doing to prevent that, and I'm not just talking about Fox News, and I'm not talking about Breitbart, I'm talking about mainstream media, mm. CNN, um, to some extent MSNBC. All of these media companies are going like, this guy is insane. This guy is crazy. How could you do that? And the reason for that is that 95% or something of all American media is owned by five companies with five, um, you know, with five boards of directors. And obviously there's elite cohesion, so they're all connected with each other too. Um, and you know this is going you know in in the Bernie direction now, but I think Bernie. But it is crazy that yeah. that that you have five media outlets that dominate completely. Yeah. Uh, all media in in the U.S. Yeah, and obviously like these figures are very similar in European countries. Yes, of like, course. The definitely. United States is not you know s such a unique country that it would only happen there. It's yeah, just people a huge people tend country. to think that uh, that Europe is uh, much more progressive than than the states, and that might be true in some areas, but mm -hmm. it's not a blanket statement that you can that you can use no. for everything. Okay, we have healthcare and healthcare in most uh, countries and things like that. Sure, but um, for example, one this is a bit off topic. I'm just going to make this remark, but oh, for example, good. when it comes to like the Patriot Act, right? So after mm -hmm. 9/11, suddenly the 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 United States government gets all these powers to do things. Oops that Im infringe upon people's uh, liberties. Um, I think we, we did this, right? We, we did, uh, read a little bit on this uh, during our course that people think that the, that this, these laws don't exist in the EU, but they do. 
Right. You know, yeah. They might not be as extreme, but they're quite extreme as well. And, and they're and they're just phrased differently. Yeah. They're almost like yeah. sublegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- th- these things exist, exist, and I think uh, Europeans uh, are not doing any good by assuming or, or just pretending that we're s- we're light years ahead of the U.S. when right. we're not. And I think how that relates to homelessness as well is that in one of the statistics that I found, um, and again, take all of these with a grain of salt, but the Netherlands and the United States actually are extremely close to each other uh, in the rate of homelessness. Um, I think it was something like 0.037% or like 0.037 people out of 10,000 people are homeless in both countries. So it really isn't that social, that the social net um, or the so- social security net is that much stronger in Europe. It's just when it isn't strong, it's just not as apparent. Yep. And I would say in many regards, it is significantly stronger, but in many regards, it isn't. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that the, the, the number of homeless is, is that similar between the right. United States and, and, and the Netherlands would to me at first seem counterintuitive. Absolutely. Did you look a little bit more into it? You know, I kind of did. What I do know is that in the United States, each state also tends to count their homeless different. Right. Yeah. Um, so then you have 51 places or right. 51 and, definitions. And it. there's, you know, a lot of people just don't know how many. So the way it works in the United States, and I can't, I can't speak to Europe, is the homeless population in each city, or I can only speak for Seattle, actually. <laughs> but in Seattle, the way they do it is there is one annual nightly count when they bring out people. Yeah. That sounds Car- super weird. Carlotta is giving me a look right now, and I wish you could see it, but it's it's very true. So only one night a year, people, you know, I don't know if they're volunteers, but people go out to all the shelters, to all the hotspots, if you will, and they do one nightly count of people who are out there and counting them for that night, which then goes into the statistics as the number of homeless people who are in the city that year. And this usually happens in the winter. I think the one in Seattle is happening now or happens It happens soon. in the winter? Yeah, it happens in the winter because the idea is that, well, from what I read, the idea is, and you will not like this, the idea is that the people who are really homeless will only be out in the winter. The people who are kind of homeless. Oh, my God, this is horrible. Yeah. So this is this nightly count. And so I don't know if that's the same here in Amsterdam. I would imagine Amsterdam has a little bit you know, this is me obviously being biased, thinking that it's it's a pretty liberal, pretty advanced city. Um, but my thinking is that in Amsterdam, they might have a better way of doing this. Um, but how do you? I mean, it is a very, very difficult okay. number to find. The, 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 tr- the, the, the winter thing reminds me of something. And this is this is telling of how low the bar is that I was reading about eviction figures in France. And I read that apparently there's a winter truce. So from November 1st to March 31st, there's like no evictions. You can apply uh, to have your eviction sort of uh, postponed because you don't want to be in the streets in winter. And I read this and I was like, oh, that's so nice. And then I thought about it and I was like, wait, no, they're, they're just getting evicted three or four months later. This is this is crazy. Um, but about Amsterdam, uh, this is probably a good moment to talk about gentrification. We live in a city that um, is being gentrified at a very rapid uh, rage, you see. Wait, you the Spaniard and me the German? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're yeah, we are. We're first time I'm hearing actually. about this. Um, yeah. So you have uh, neighborhoods uh, that were um, traditionally, let's say, strongholds of working com- class community and also uh, minorities that live in the city. Right. Um, 
And now uh, these people who were already in a bit of a marginalized position or, or a very marginalized position are being pushed back further and further to other areas whilst their houses are being bought by um, either p uh, private uh, um, uh, uh, landowners or companies or, they say, uh, banks and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, mo many of these were actually so social housing, which implies that there's a transfer of wealth from like the state expenditure towards this uh, private uh, uh, companies or banks or whatever. Um, and these people are being kicked out of their houses where they had been living since forever. And Amsterdam, is this is a really big problem um, in the city. So it pains me because I, you, we, I am used to thinking of Amsterdam as a very uh, forward city. Mm -hmm. And this is something uh, that I, is not only Amsterdam that I've seen, but in the past years since uh, the, let's say, uh, return of the neoliberals, so in like in the 70s, like you in know? Star Wars. Yeah, sure. <laughs> return of the neoliberals. <laughs> Since the return of the neoliberals, um, wait, what was it saying now? Gentrification. Oh, yeah. So we have seen uh, that all these uh, supposedly leftist parties mm -hmm. um, have sponsored very salient social issues, such as, for example, gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And they have forgotten about their sort of economic base so of course uh, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, gay marriage is not important it's absolutely essential that all this kind breaking of news <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's I, I i shouldn't have to say it but you know yeah um so, some people have uh, weird opinions some people have weird opinions um yeah so of course all this all, all these issues are, are extremely important but you also cannot forget about the economics right so you cannot pretend that you're a leftist party if you don't tackle these issues as well um and this is why we think of many cities like Amsterdam as, as extremely liberal because they have all these socialist policies that are mm -hmm. in fact extremely liberal, but in the economic sense, not so much. Yeah. And that's why I would I would never really uh, trust. Uh, yeah, those sort of, sort of figures and and, and thing. I, I don't think right. they're very accurate. Yeah, I mean that's a big problem for uh, social democrats all over Europe, though, right? Because you don't really have that labor class anymore. You don't really you have don't. steel mill workers. You don't no. really have you know people who work you know, in, I don't know, cotton factories or whatever. But also because the working class has been fragmented, you know, like before you had the um, sort of is epitome, the word, I think, um, yeah. of the working class person. And that's that was like a white man, male, uh, let's say, in his like 30s. With a sledgehammer like, yeah. and a wife beater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like a very homogeneous class, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's easy to uh, organize uh, when you're like that. But in the past years, decades, uh, you've seen... Uh, the working class being fragmented. Now you have uh, precarious workers, like for example, Deliveroo uh, people who don't right. don't really fit into labor unions. Are not represented by any who labor are, unions. Who are technically self-employed. Yeah, technically, but really but not weird. really. We have seen some cities fight back against this, and this is why I think uh, cities are, are a great site of contestation and of mm -hmm. resistance. For example, I think it was either Madrid or Barcelona or both that um, ruled out that ruled uh, or judged it that these workers were not. Um, what was the word again? Uh, self-employed yeah we're yeah. not self-employed so like uh, in spanish it's called autonomous mm -hmm. um so that the delivery did have to pay them like a reasonable salary you know right. there's not just uh um so about uh cities i think this is actually quite important the movements that uh, i've seen or that i that i read about uh that were fighting evictions such as in spain the people affected by mortgages uh, platform the pah they are mostly grassroots uh, responses that are organized locally they're, they're assembly-based, uh, they're, they're quite, um, yeah, they're based just in, in cities. And I think that's a very effective way of uh, fighting against these problems because you have uh, national governments that are not responsible, not, not responsive uh, to these issues. You're not going to wait around 
until the government decides that, yeah, we're going to help you out. This is how uh, cities or, or towns or local uh, governments take power back and, and implement their own measures and try mm -hmm. to fight back against uh, these problems. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., there are sanctuary cities for undocumented immigrants. Right, right? yeah, yeah, so also, in the, also in Europe, yeah. Cities are very, very interesting in the way that they handle these problems. And now that we're talking about undocumented migrants, well, that you mentioned it, um, it's also worth mentioning that, for example, in Germany, a big, big portion of the homeless people are refugees. Yes. That cannot find, and this is a big problem in Amsterdam as well, because uh, there's a very ambiguous classification of uh, what, who counts as a, as a refugee. Um, so sometimes you have people who, because uh, they're sort of in the limbo between uh, their process of becoming a refugee or not, they cannot work in the meantime, they cannot work, so they cannot secure housing, uh, mm -hmm. the shelters are all full, yeah. and it's this vicious cycle where you can't really do anything about your situation because all these laws prevent you from doing all these things, right. you know? Um, and so it's, it's important to, to, to uh, pay attention to who is homeless. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, uh, that's uh, also a big part of the issue. Sure. A lot of... Uh, What's this word again? Um, oh my God, I keep forgetting words. Uh, discrimination, yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there's another group of homeless people that really stands out to you back in the U.S. Um, if you ever go. Um, and I can't. You can't? Well, I would have to pay a lot for a new visa. Yeah, that's true. But the U.S. is expensive anyway, so you would have to pay a lot no matter what. Um, but anyway, there is a group of homeless people in the United States that um, is very striking very very interesting sort of like dynamic that you see going on there and that's veterans oh right yeah yeah, yeah. that's a big issue right mm -hmm. yeah and you think uh with uh with uh, um, uh people in the states as crazy as they are about uh, the veterans and protecting the veterans mm -hmm. and everything that that this wouldn't be an issue but yeah a lot of people that are homeless are veterans oh, yeah. right oh yeah so i did a bit of research into this the united states population is 327 million and there's 18.2 million veterans, so that comes to about 5.5% of the population who are veterans. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. That's a whole lot. So please double-check this if, um, if you don't believe me, but this is what I have found. Um, but out of the homeless population, 14.2% are veterans. 14.2% out of the homeless population are veterans. That's insanely higher. Yeah. Um, and then another f uh, figure that I found is that about 11% of the adult homeless populations are veterans. So this is kind of like the range that I'm seeing. So between 11 and 14.2%. Um, and then roughly 45% of all homeless veterans are African-American or Hispanic, despite only accounting for 10.4% and 3.4% of the U.S. veteran population, respectively. So not only do you see a, a group that has gone all over the world for the United States to fight to put their life on the line, you know, whether you might agree with the mission or not, like these people think, they think that they're doing, you know, a really, really good thing for their country. They come home and then they are absolutely disproportionately homeless because there's no resources, resources available for them. A lot of the time they don't have a real skill that is transferable because pointing guns at people and like, you know, being there for security reasons, doesn't translate into no, an office job. You have PTSD. You, you might actually be disabled in a physical way. You have all kinds of things. And then within that group, if you're African-American or Hispanic, when you already are more, you know, at a threat of being homeless, even then that, that still makes you more likely to be homeless. That is very ridiculous to me. And when I was walking through Seattle, 
it's it's really it's in a way it's heartbreaking. You know, I'm not I'm not a big fan of American imperialism. Never have been, never will. And I don't like what the government is doing. I very much disagree with what Trump is doing in the Middle East. I also disagreed with a lot of what Obama was doing, Bush was doing. Yeah. Right? However, American you can't look at these people. Big disaster. These a lot of these people saw the military. This is a huge reason for people to go to the military. They have no other thing that they can do. Maybe they grew up impoverished. Maybe they grew up without access to real education in one of the richest countries in the world, right? And then they go to the military. You know, they're just following orders. They yeah. come home, and then they're treated like garbage. And and they're out in the streets begging. It's a ridiculous thing. And you criticize that in, in certain parts of the American political spectrum. And you criticize that and say that that is an absolutely terrible state and then you're called un-American. I've seen this on many talk shows. You're un-American for blaming, you know, the government, for blaming the country, for what these people probably did to themselves. Like right. this whole responsibility, like individual responsibility thing, it's just such a powerful tor tool yeah. for the economic and social elites to, to get their way all of the time. I think that is the most, uh, I mean, I don't like the word impressive, but let's, let's just say impressive uh, side of capitalism is how it has been able to manufacture this whole narrative story and sort of explanations that are supported by think tanks, universities, uh, important mm. speakers, and that it is so believable to so many people, and they're taken as reality, you know, as uh, as facts. It, it that is is um, quite crazy. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you have to add? Um, probably a lot, but. I think um, this post podcast is nearing its end. Sure, yeah. And we are thinking about maybe returning to new topics. So if you, our valued listeners, um, have any input... Which at the in moment we have none. We have none. We have none right now. It is very possible that you listening right now are going to be our first ever um, listener. listener. Yes. <laughs> um, and if you want to get in touch with us, I'm sure we have an email address somewhere that you can write to us on. And then we can incorporate your feedback. And what I was going to say is we are thinking about maybe returning to these topics. So if in a couple of weeks we get a really interesting book recommendation or someone who could maybe do an interview with us, um, then maybe we could have that person here. See, the thing is we're still growing. We're just kind of testing the waters right now. And we're going to mess around with, the different, uh, with different types of formats. Um, so it's very possible we'll return to homelessness uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um I like this topic. I think it's uh, quite interesting. And I like it because it also ties into many other issues. And of course, I like everything that I can trace back to capitalism. So, you know. But uh, that being said, buy a flush kitten. I, uh, I get one every month when I'm on my period. It's quite comforting. And then I get rid of it. Um, Smart. Yeah, I know, right? Right. So that's all from us. Uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope you come back. See you next time. Bye bye.